In chapter one of Christmas Quest, we were introduced to Tyrion, a young slave whose childhood had been spent in a dank and dirty jail cell. Ripped from his family as a boy, Tyrion's only contact with the outside world had been a cruel prison guard, and memories of his long-lost family had faded over time. He occupied his mind with simple games played with marbles and whiled away the lonely hours in his cell, listening to the clanking music of his ankle chains. One day, a mysterious traveler named Acker had arrived and broke Tyrion out of jail. The warrior inspired Tyrion with stories of a distant royal homeland where Tyrion's father, brother, and sister waited, yearning to be reunited with him. If they could survive the journey on a treacherous path ahead, Tyrion could experience the world's most wondrous Christmas celebration, complete with food and games and a grand gift exchange. Their escape from the prison was a dramatic one, with a prison guard hot on their heels. The path away from the prison led to the edge of a chasm where Tyrion faced a decision. A dangerous leap could propel him onto a new life of freedom or down into a ravine. Now, prospects of falling to his death made jail seem like a decent option. As Tyrion stood at the brink of the chasm, he heard a gruff voice offering one last chance to repent. Come back with me now, and we'll act like this never happened. The guard shouted, aiming a bow and arrow at Tyrion's head. Acker's calm directive, echoing from the other side of the gorge, encouraged him. Tyrion, trust me. You can make this jump. The few seconds of decision passed in slow motion. A noise in the distance distracted the guard for a moment, and Tyrion instinctively leapt vaulting himself with every ounce of his depleting energy. His lunge was just enough, and he landed on the opposite side with a painful crunch. A vicious expletive escaped from the guard's mouth, followed by the zing of an arrow just missing Tyrion. Acker helped him up, and the duo scrambled back onto the path. As they ran, the guard's voice trailed off into the night. You're too weak, dog! You'll never survive out there! They ran and ran up and down a hilly road, until Tyrion could go no further. He looked back to chart their progress, and the prison was now represented by a small dot of light in the valley behind them. Acker opened a satchel and produced a warm cloak for Tyrion, along with a canteen and a bite of dried meat. Rest for a bit. He instructed with a smile. So, how does it feel? Tyrion paused and replied, Chewy? No, I'm talking about freedom. How does it feel to be free? Tyrion stopped chewing. Oh, free? I don't know. Right now all my muscles are aching from running. My stomach is somehow both hungry and nauseous. And the rest of me is either cold or bleeding or both. He pointed to the chains on his bony ankles, now trickling blood. And to be honest, I'm also pretty scared. Acker nodded. Well, I'm feeling a lot of those same things. And I can't blame you for being afraid. What we're doing isn't easy. The path to the royal homeland is dangerous. And I won't lie, there's a chance we won't make it. But if we do, I promise it'll be more than worth it. Everything you're feeling right now, all of that'll vanish when you walk into that magnificent ballroom and get your first look at everything laid out for the Christmas celebration. Acker described in vivid detail the festival atmosphere, 
the beautiful party scene and the family reunion that awaited him. There's hundreds of people there playing games, laughing and singing. There's brightly lit candles, garlands, sparkling ornaments, towering Christmas trees, everything glowing with light and color. It's, it's almost more than the eye can take in. Oh, sounds like a dream. No, it's, it's real. Oh, wait till you see the food. Braised beef, stuffed chicken, roast potatoes, bread, cakes, pies, the most amazing dinner spread in the world. And best of all, it's all you can eat. Tyrion's mind wandered in the images of decorations, food, and fun until a loud growl from his stomach interrupted them. Well, I guess that's our cue. We can't wait for the celebration to eat. We'll have to settle on something a little less regal. Just over this hill, there's a bog where we can get some mussels and oysters. Come on. They climbed down a short hill and found an icy bog, fed by a partially frozen stream. Gotta dig a little, but just under the surface, there's dozens of oysters. He demonstrated the technique, prying up a handful of shells from the mud. Just be careful. The, the edge of the bank can be slippery. The words had barely exited Acker's lips when Tyrion stepped on a slick rock and plunged clumsily into the freezing waters. He panicked, thrashing around and screaming. Help! I'm drowning! His yelps woke up a variety of creatures in the swamp. I can't swim! Snapping turtles and water snakes began to swarm towards him. Get away from me! Help! Tyrion, stay calm! Help! If you'll stop yelling, I can explain! Get me out, please! Tyrion, the water's only four feet deep! Just stand up! Nothing bad will happen to you. Oh. Well, I mean, nothing bad until the alligators wake up. <laughs> Tyrion quickly stood up and scrambled out of the bog. Acker gathered a bag full of shells, and the pair hiked ahead to a high hill, making camp in the clearing of a wooded area. Acker started a small fire, and Tyrion huddled near the flames, shivering, still damp from his swim. Acker cooked up the mussels and oysters, and as they ate... The guide gently challenged his protege. The path we're walking is risky and dangerous, but if you'll listen, trust me and follow my advice, we can make it to the homeland alive. Steady focus on our goal is the key. As they ate and chatted, Acker found a pearl in one of the oysters. He tossed it to Tyrion. Here, keep this in a safe place. It'd make a great gift for your sister. Tyrion had never seen anything as beautiful as the tiny, shining sphere. Before leaving to gather more firewood, Acker reminded Tyrion to keep an eye out. Try to stay awake till I get back. Bandits are known to hang out in these woods, and they would love to add your keepsakes to their stash. So be vigilant and hide that pearl. As Acker departed, Tyrion pushed in closer to the fire and stoked the orange embers with a stick. His belly was full, and he was getting sleepy. He thought, I'll play a game to stay awake. He started simply, with just a few leaves and pebbles. But before long, Tyrion had forgotten his friend's warnings, and had devised an elaborate activity, now including his precious pebbles and the pearl. He was so enjoying the fun and admiring the reflections in the firelight, that he failed to notice a pair of beady, bloodshot eyes peering at him from the brush. Suddenly, Tyrion heard rushing footsteps and was able to gather his stones and the pearl just before the thief's punch clubbed his ears. He stumbled, but kept a tight grip on the treasures. Give me that pearl. The robber sneered while prying at Tyrion's hand. They wrestled back and forth as the thief grabbed and Tyrion defended. 
Tyrion was just bigger than his foe and was able to fend off the assault. A hefty push threw Tyrion to the ground and the bandit unsheathed a dagger from his belt. He slashed at Tyrion's cheek from above, barely missing. Don't make me cut you. Just give me that pearl. As the robber lifted his arm to lunge again, Tyrion rolled away and scurried over to the edge of a nearby cliff, devising a quick plan. The thief scrambled forward, arm outstretched, with a blade aimed for his opponent's chest. Tyrion threw the marbles at the feet of the robber, who slipped and fell, his momentum sending him tumbling over the mountainside. <laughs> Tyrion looked over his shoulder as the bandit dropped quickly out of view, a distant thud confirming his demise in the ravine below. He stood breathless for a long minute, then suddenly remembered the need to breathe. Tyrion took a deep breath, noticed that his hands were shaking. He calmed himself, stooped, and gathered the marbles, which had scattered around on the ground. Then, in the dark, his eye was caught by a gleam of light. It was the thief's jeweled dagger, resting on a rock by the cliff's edge. He reached down and claimed it. Just as Acker came back into the clearing, carrying a stack of firewood, Tyrion rushed over. You won't believe what just happened! He recounted the details of the mugging to Acker. Being careful to leave out the part where he failed to heed his mentor's warnings. Well, I'm glad you're okay. It's good to know that you can take care of yourself in a pinch. But you were lucky there was just one attacker. I'll keep watch. You better get some sleep. We've got a long hike tomorrow. Tyrion settled in for a nap and carefully tucked the knife in his belt before shutting his eyes. I can give this dagger to my brother, he thought. He tried to imagine the scene of the great gift exchange and the look on the faces of his long-lost siblings. The smiles were just coming into focus when he nodded off and quickly slipped into a deep sleep. Well, it's obvious that uh, Tyrion has embarked on an, an adventure of a lifetime. I mean, even though he has been assaulted, he's puzzled, he's soaking wet and having to spend the night in a swamp, his friend Acker is trying to encourage him by telling him of a most glorious celebration that he can look forward to in the future, where he will be reconnected with those who love him and those he loves. Did you know that a story is only as good as its ending? I remember when Patty and I were first married. I hadn't been married to Patty very long uh, before I came to realize that I had married a cheater. Patty cheats. Yeah. And I'm not talking about cheating on her taxes or cheating on a test or cheating even in a board game. I and mean, Patty's extremely honest. She would never do anything like that. But I'm telling you the truth, my wife's a cheater. She'll be reading a book, and if the action gets too intense, or if one of the lead characters looks like they're not going to make it, you know what she'll do? She'll flip over to the last chapter. She'll read the last chapter of the story. That's a cheater in my book. Yeah, I've asked her, I said, doesn't um, knowing the ending take away from 
the fun and the drama of the story? Absolutely not, she says. It doesn't take away the fun and the drama. What it does is it takes away the fear. And it frees you up to enjoy the action. You know, you go to a movie theater and you pick out a movie to watch. And uh, it really doesn't matter, you know, how provocatively that movie begins or how thoroughly the characters are developed in that movie. If the ending falls flat, then the movie's a complete disappointment, isn't it? But did you know the opposite is true as well? I mean, a, a tragic story can be saved by an awesome ending. You see, a story is only as good as its ending. Now, that's why knowing what's ahead of us in the future for heaven is so important. You, you see, if you don't have an accurate picture of your future that draws you in eager anticipation, then your journey in this life ends up becoming a nightmare of constant struggle. You see, a story is only as good as its ending. And if you don't know the ending, then Thoreau was right. That most of mankind lives uh, lives of quiet desperation. Did you know that you and I were created with eternity in mind? In fact, in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon put it this way. It says, God put eternity in their hearts. In other words, God has put inside us a sense, a feeling that there is something more, something bigger that we're to be a part of. And our hearts yearn for that reality. In fact, you observe life going on around you. I mean, you'll notice mankind uh, is in search of something, for anything that can fill that yearning inside. And even though we might believe in heaven, we tend to live as though that our life here on earth is our best shot at happiness. Yet, this life rarely meets our expectations, does it? doesn't it? I mean, think with me for a moment. Vacations end. Relationships, well, they disappoint, don't they? The the career never delivers on what we thought it would deliver on. I mean, you just look around, or or for that matter, look in the mirror. We're trying to fill this eternal-shaped hole with all kinds of things. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's sex. It could be money. could be power. It, It might be success or even religion. And then yet we discover that those things... No matter how hard we try, they never really satisfy. I mean, inside of all of us is a yearning that there must be more to life than just this life. You know, C.S. Lewis, probably one of the greatest thinkers of all time, he put it this way. He said, if I find in myself a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If if none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that doesn't prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. 
In other words, if you're feeling a longing for more, uh, a, a sense that something is missing in your life, that you're supposed to be a part, and we're all supposed to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, uh, that, that is beyond this life that nothing in this world seems to satisfy, perhaps the fulfillment lies beyond this world. I mean, maybe the longing we ultim- will be ultimately fulfilled in another world, maybe it points toward heaven. Now, that makes me wonder, what, what do you think about when you think of heaven? I mean, what pops in your mind when you think of eternity with God? Well, watch this video clip for a moment. Tell me something. The bullwhip. Is it still the fastest roller coaster on earth? I figured this much. Nothing changes here. There is no peering down from the clouds, I'm afraid. Yes. You died. An accident. How long ago? A minute, an hour, a thousand years. Where are you? Where do you think? Heaven. Now, is that what you think about when you think of heaven? Is it a carnival? Is it a place of endless delights? I I mean, the problem we face is that all of us have a misconception of what heaven is really like. I'm afraid we're a lot like the little boy who in Sunday school class every Sunday he would announce, I don't want to go to heaven. I mean, it bothered the Sunday school teacher because it happened every Sunday. After several weeks, the teacher finally took the little boy aside and asked him, why doesn't he want to go to heaven? He said, I hate peas. The teacher said, peas? What do you mean? Well, he was familiar with that, that refrain in Silent Night, sleep in heavenly peas. I mean, black-eyed peas, chickpeas, green peas. He pictured a place full of peas. Now, our misconception of heaven is no worse many times than that. I mean, how many of you have heard that heaven will be an unending worship service? Any of you? Yeah. That seems so one-dimensional and boring for that matter. An endless worship service? I mean, maybe some of you picture heaven as having little fat babies fluttering around with little short wings flying everywhere. Or maybe you picture um, disgruntled saints sitting on clouds dressed in white robes with a halo over their head. And what is all this business about 
streets lined with gold, gold everywhere. I mean, where are the mountains, the trees? I mean, I don't know about you, but I want to see green. I mean, some have even quoted 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, where Paul says, But it's written, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And they say, see, we can't know what's in heaven. But, but they don't read the whole verse or the next verse. The next verse says, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. In, in other words, this verse is saying just the opposite of what many people think it's saying. I mean, Paul's not saying we can't know anything about God in heaven and what heaven's going to be like. He's not saying that heaven is beyond our imagination. Instead, he's saying there are things that eye has not seen, ears not heard, and that hearts have not imagined in the past that has now been revealed to us in the Scripture through His Spirit. You see, God has revealed far more about heaven than most of us realize, and and the Bible teaches that a clear vision of the future with God can be one of the most powerful motivating forces in our lives in the present. You see, if you can't envision what heaven's going to be like, how can you look forward to it? You can't. You see, how we see heaven in our future, it affects how we live now. And that's why Paul in Colossians chapter 3 verse 2 tells the church at Colossae this, you've got to set your mind on things above, not the things on earth. I mean, he's asking us to set our mind on heavenly things. In fact, it was Paul's ability to focus in on eternal realities that helped him live well in the midst of temporal difficulties. Remember, he was shipwrecked, he's been beaten, flogged, stoned, he's been left for dead. If your mental picture of heaven is fuzzy, then how can you focus on it? I mean, so what should our perspective on heaven and life on this earth be like? Well, several months ago, Patty invited some friends over and provided an unbelievable dinner. I mean, it began with salad that had uh, little mandarin oranges and roasted almonds on top and And then there was pork tenderloin that had been grilled outside. Uh, And and it was served along with some uh, steamed spears of asparagus, along with these little tiny new potatoes and homemade rolls. And then at the end of the meal, there was Patty's homemade chocolate sauce poured over homemade ice cream. Oh, whoa, baby, you talk about a meal. I mean, it was unbelievable. When I walked in the house... I took in a cacophony of smells. I mean, I immediately went into the kitchen. I said, Patty, can, can I get something? Can I get something to eat right now? I mean, wow, this is great. And she says, no, you, no, get away. You can't. We got to wait. We, we had to wait for the guests to arrive. We had to wait for the food to stop cooking, to be finished cooking. Had to wait for the table to be set. I said, but I'm starving right now. She said, well, here. Well, why don't you have some of these appetizers. And she handed me a plate containing peas, carrots. Peas and carrots? 
These things don't satisfy. This is not what I had in mind. A peas and carrots will never satisfy my hunger inside. I mean, you could say that I was never built for peas and carrots. I was built for pork tenderloin with Patty's chocolate sauce. That's what I was built for. But, you know, this is a great picture of earth and our life now and heaven in the future. I mean, our world, well, it's snap peas and carrots. It was never meant to satisfy. It's just simply an appetizer. It was meant to point us towards something bigger that's coming. I mean, do you remember the joy you felt the first time you held your firstborn in your arms? That was just peas and carrots. That's just an appetizer. Do you remember the excitement you felt when you landed that steelhead up on the Chagrin River in northern Ohio, and you landed it for the first time on a fly rod. Just an appetizer, that's all. Remember what you felt like the first time you climbed maybe one of the peaks in Colorado or maybe to the top of a mountain in the Appalachian, and it opened a vista that just took your breath away? Peas and carrots. It was just an appetizer designed to whet our appetite. For what's ahead. You see, the Bible says that God has made this world and everything in it, and He's made you. And He's made the longings and desires inside you. Now, He'd be a cruel God if He made you with certain longings and didn't give you an avenue to have those longings fulfilled. I mean, he, He's made us so that we're hungry. That's a longing. He provides food. He, he's made us so that we get thirsty, so He provides water. He, you, you seek companionship? You seek relationship? Well, He has ordained marriage and relationships uh, to meet that need. Um, since we have longings inside that don't get completely fulfilled here on this earth, those longings, well, they are pointing to something ahead. Something else out there. That this earth is just an appetizer. They're pointing to another world, to heaven. In fact, one author put it this way. There's in the heart of every man, woman, and child an inconsolable longing for three things. And he says these three things are signposts on the highway of life pointing to a destination in the future. And so these three things, these longings are like gifts that are hinted to on this earth that won't be ultimately fulfilled until we get to heaven. I mean, you, you could call the first a gift. A gift of intimacy. Intimacy. Hinted to on this earth in a marriage relationship, but ultimately fulfilled in heaven. And when I talk about intimacy, I'm talking about being truly known and accepted for who you are. Now, now women tend to identify with this longing quicker than men do, but guys, I want to remind you, remember what it was like in grade school when they picked teams for kickball and you were the last or the next to the last one picked? I mean, you just wanted to die, didn't you? Now, now for me, uh, it was uh, the teacher picking reading groups. 
I mean, there were the sharks, there were the rabbits, and there were the turtles. Guess which one everyone wanted to avoid? My, I'm dyslexic, so I always got put in that reading group. Or, or when they would pick teams for a spelling bee, I wanted to throw up. I knew I'd be the last person picked. You see, throughout our lives, we kind of live with this constant nagging tension that we will never quite add up. We'll never fit in and never truly belong. And all of us have had enough experiences in life to, to know that we will never make it into the inner circle. Not permanently. And if we are accepted in the inner circle, it's never for who we are inside. It's for the image, the mask we tend to wear. So what we end up doing is hiding parts of ourselves in order to receive that kind of acceptance. Or we either hide ourselves or we either kill our desire to be an insider, to be accepted, rather than allowing that longing to lead us to the one who knows us intimately and accepts us just the way we are. That's God. But, but on the other hand, I mean, remember the joy of having someone save a place for you in school? Remember walking into a large room and having somebody across the room wave at you? Hey, over here, Doug, over here. And point to a chair that has been saved just for you? Remember the joy that that, how that, of how that felt, that sense of relief? It was a taste of being on the inside. And in our Christmas story, what we have is Tyrion who's also being wooed to a place that he's never seen, he's never experienced. It's a royal homeland where it's filled with love, the love of those who love him, and he will be able to express his love to those that he cares about. It's a longing in all of us. And that longing, actually Jesus addresses it specifically. In John chapter 12, or John chapter 14, here's what he says. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I mean, do you see it? He saved you a place. That's what he's saying. One day, you and I will walk into a crowded banquet hall. It's filled with the sounds of laughter and music. And our hearts will leap with the hope that we will finally be allowed in the inner circle. And you will not be disappointed. You will be welcomed by the one who knows you thoroughly but accepts you just the way you are. And no one will have to scramble to make room at the end of the table or to find a chair, or to scurry up a place setting. It'll be a place specifically for you. In fact, the Scripture calls that the marriage supper of the Lamb. And it's interesting that of all the terms that God would choose to describe this dinner, He describes the most tenderest experience on earth. The union of a man and a woman in marriage. He uses that to convey the depth of intimacy that we'll be a part of in heaven. So in the same way, this earth really intensifies our yearning 
to be involved in the inner circle of intimacy, it also awakens a second ache in our lives. And this ache you could describe as a gift as well. It would be the gift of beauty. See, there's a gift of intimacy we'll participate in in heaven, and there is also the gift of beauty. I mean, every one of us has had the experience of going around a curve in a car, and suddenly a vista opens up that we didn't expect, and it takes our breath away. It's the beauty of what we just saw that grips us, that hints to a beauty sometime in the future we'll be a part of. In fact, several years ago, we decided to take the family up to Aspen, Colorado, but we wanted to go the back way over Independence Pass. I mean, one of the most beautiful places in all of Colorado. And as we are ascending to the past, to the past, we are looking out the windows, taking in the, the beauty of what's going on. Look at that. I was telling my daughter Laura, look at that. And then we happen to look over at Patty. Now, Patty was in the passenger seat, and about four feet from her was a drop-off outside and sudden death. So we're in this most beautiful part of all of Colorado, and what is Patty doing? She's sitting there like this. And Laura's saying, Mom, Mom, look at this, look at this. And I said, Bonnie, you've got to take this in, look at this. And so Patty would do this. And then she'd close her eyes again. Well, we finally got up to the summit, and we parked in a safe place so Patty could get out. And when we got out of the car and we turned around to look, it took our breath away. No one said a word. We just stared. You wanted to freeze frame it. It was so beautiful. You wanted to capture it somehow and take it home with you, save it somehow. I mean, maybe for you it's a sunset, or maybe it's an orchestra playing together, or maybe it might be watching an elite athlete perform, or it's as simple as watching a baby nurse at a mom's breast. I mean, whatever it is that causes tears in your eyes and a lump in your throat, there's a desire for beauty that lies deep in all of us, waiting for something to awaken it that points to something in the future. In fact, I love the way author Mike Hepburn put it. He said, each and every instance of beauty is a promise, an example, and in miniature, miniature, miniature of life that can end in balance with symmetry, purpose, and hope. We all long for beauty because it hints to something greater in our future. In fact, C.S. Lewis, I mean, he put it this way. He said, one of the mistakes we often make when captured by an object of beauty, whether it's a place, a person, or a work of art, is to assume that the longing in our heart is for the thing before us. But these things, look at what he says, are mere shadows of realities to come. Now, that's why John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, used the word like and as so much. In fact, he used those words 79 times to be exact. In fact, I want you to just look at two verses to see how he used it. In Revelation 4, he says, 
And he, referring to Jesus, who sat there like a jasper and a sardis stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like a crystal. You see, it's not simply that heaven will be the absence of pain and suffering, but in heaven we will have new bodies that can partake of all the beauty that will surround us. In fact, Jonathan Edwards, one of America's greatest thinkers and theologians, put it this way. When referring to the new body, he says, every faculty will be an inlet of delight. We'll get to experience all of that. And now in the same way that life awakens a longing for intimacy and beauty, it also points to a fulfillment, that it will be fulfilled in heaven. It also points to a third gift that will be given to us in heaven. I mean, the question is, what will we do in heaven? I mean, will will it be one endless sing-along? Will we be sitting on clouds strumming harps? I mean, that that sounds boring to me. Or maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, you know, that all this talk about heaven seems so unscientific and so delusional. But before you reject the idea of heaven, I, I want to share with you why you'd want to believe this is true. You see, in heaven, it will fulfill the longing in every man's heart for true adventure. That's why you're attracted to the movies you're attracted to. Guys, that's a longing deep in your heart. Did you know Jesus told two parables that indicate that heaven is going to be a place of great adventure in the future? I mean, there was the parable of the talents in Matthew 25. And then the parable of the minas in Luke 19. And in both of those, Jesus says, for those who serve well, In small things on this earth, they will be given greater adventures in the future in heaven. You know, there is something in all of us that wants to believe that we are part of something bigger than ourselves. I mean, very few of us feel like the talents that we have have been used to their maximum here. Or the creativity that we have been gifted with gets full expression on this earth. Well, in heaven, it will have that full expression. And Jesus promises in heaven we will actively fulfill the design that He's given us here on earth that doesn't get that kind of expression. And we'll get to experience the use of those abilities that He has given us in a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, the book of Revelation tells us that our universe is going to be remade and that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And this new heaven and new earth will actually be a continuation of what was interrupted back in the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve chose to go their own independent way from God, it'll be the continuation of that story except in a positive direction. You see, in the beginning, God created this earth, and He entrusted us to care for it. Uh, But this arrangement, it was corrupted by Adam and Eve when they chose to rebel against God. And so, years later, God sends His Son Jesus to this earth to rescue us. But He didn't come to rescue us to set us on the bench. He restores us so that we can go back into the game. 
And part of that adventure will be exploring this new heaven and a new earth with new bodies that have new capabilities that we at this point are unaware of. But we'll get to explore the earth. In fact, I suspect the solar system and the universe in the new heaven and new earth. But it doesn't stop there. We also get to explore the mysteries of God. But it's even more than that. We get to share what we discover with one another. And each is, is delighted by what the other has shared. You see, in this adventure, we get to experience in the future. We get a hint of in our adventures on earth in the present. They're just mere shadows of what awaits us in heaven. In fact, I love the way the Apostle Paul talks about these adventures. In Romans 8, he says, For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. That's us. That's you and me. And then he continues, For the creation was subjected to futility. Now, that's what happened when Adam and Eve chose independence from God. But he continues, But the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That phrase, the glorious liberty of the children of God, speaks of our adventure in heaven. We will not only get to explore the new heavens and the new earth, but we'll explore the very nature of God Himself. And then notice, when Paul says the earnest expectation of creation, he's talking about how nature seems to have a second sense, a premonition, if you will, of this glorious adventure in the future where we get to be with Jesus and get to experience what the disciples got to experience on the earth, only in a perfect environment. And from what I learn in this Bible... Being with Jesus is anything but boring. I mean, the New Testament tells us, well, Peter got to walk on water. I mean, Mary got to engage a whole host of angels. I mean, Paul, he, he, he was made blind and then almost immediately was able to see again. John was taken to the very throne room of God. And at this time of year, when we focus our attention on a little child who was born to a virgin... And announced by a heavenly host, we find angels visiting shepherds, wise men taking epic journeys, and an unwed teenage mother giving birth to a child while experiencing the peace beyond comprehension. And those things are just shadows of what we'll get to experience in heaven. You see, it'll, heaven will be filled with all kinds of adventures and surprises and unexpected twists and turns. They'll be awaiting all those who know Jesus. But I promise you this, that being with Jesus in all eternity, the one who knows us and accepts us just the way we are, will not be boring, scary, or uncomfortable. In fact, the fact that heaven is the fulfillment of our longing for beauty, intimacy, and adventure that should woo our hearts every day toward thinking about our future destiny in life with God. You know, in 1952, Florence Chadwick stepped into the Atlantic Ocean um, off an island in uh, the Pacific, Catalina Island. 
she was going to swim from Catalina to mainland uh, Southern California, a distance of about 21 miles. Uh, she was already was the first woman to swim the English Channel. Now she wanted to swim this gap between Catalina and Northern California. Well, she plunged into the water and she began swimming. After about 15 hours, I mean, she was exhausted. She was weary. She had lost sight of the goal and the value of pressing on. And she stopped in the water and said, I quit. I want to be taken out of the water. Her mother was in the boat that was following. She pulled up alongside and says, no, you can make it. You don't have much further to go. Keep swimming. But she was spent physically and emotionally and gave up swimming. So they had to pull her on board. And when she stood up on the deck of that boat and looked eastward, she could see the lights of Southern California, less than a half a mile away. The next day after she recovered, she had a press conference. And the reporters asked her why she gave up so close to finishing. Here's what she said. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Now that shore for us is being with Jesus forever in a place He's created specifically for you. That shore for us is a new heaven and a new earth with beauty and adventure beyond our, our ideas. And if you can see through the fog of misconception and picture that home, I guarantee you this, it will comfort you in time when times get hard and it will energize you for the rest of your life. That's what the series is about. Father, help us picture the end of the story in a way that it draws us forward in eager anticipation. Give us an accurate picture as, as we continue this series and I look forward, we all look forward to seeing you face to face. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.